around here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shields up. Signatures detected. Context Southfleet Command. What's happening? Context Southfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Southfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Southfleet Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to the greatest discovery. The Star Trek Discovery podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. How you doing, Adam? Well, I'm I'm doing fine because it's Max <laughs> Fun Drive time, Ben. Oh man, uh, Max Fun Drive is the only thing that has given me life right now. I've been sick in bed for a couple of days. Oh no! Uh, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but uh, yeah, my sinuses were full of very evil substances. It's uh, it's Max Fun Drive time and it's sinus infection time <laughs> for Benjamin R. Harrison. I I get a yearly sinus infection, Ben, so I know exactly how you feel. Though I'm not feeling that way at the moment. That sucks. Yeah, it's uh, I think uh, are you a man think- who squirts water into their sinuses using the little uh, squeeze bottle? Are you that guy? I'm not that guy. Is that some? Is that a, a type of guy I should consider becoming? Well, I would recommend you not. Look, I fucking hate I need to say this just by referring to anything close to this, but like we don't dispense medical advice and I don't recommend you take any from me. But yeah, as no, long we as, only we only dispense legal advice. As long as show. you don't use tap water, I think uh, I think that's something to do. That's something Ooh. to try at least. It's gotten me Here's what I'll say. It does not prevent a sinus infection, though it does speed its course. I wow. have found uh, by by a saline solution. I know you can also buy like saline uh, irrigators over the counter so you don't have to do the saline mixing yourself. And, uh-huh. that, and that also keeps it like sterile, which is, I think, the best thing. Otherwise, you use a, you use a tap water, Ben, and you're growing amoeba in your brain. Yeah, I don't want an uh, amoeba in my brain. Yeah. I prefer them to stay well outside of my brain. Yeah, I want no amoebas in Ben's brain, and I want 25,000 new and upgrading members. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> supporting maximum fun during the drive. Yeah, the uh, that's the network's goal is to is to hit twenty five thousand new and upgrading members. We never we never um, set a goal for this show in particular, but we've been really flattered by the outpouring of support. You know, this is a show that is expensive and tricky to produce. Uh, we have a professional editor slash producer and Rob Schulte, who works very hard on this show. I would just and call him an editor and a producer. I, I wouldn't give it a name. I wouldn't give it a description like professional. <laughs> you don't think he's professional? <laughs> Until he works for us full time? No. I mean, he's professional in that he gets paid to do it. That's true. All right. And he does it professionally for other shows also. He has a handmade diploma on his wall about being a, a podcast <laughs> producer, so I guess if that qualifies. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just saying, like, this show wouldn't be what it is without him. and uh, That's true. It would be nothing without him, because it wouldn't get made. Yeah. We we don't have time to do this crap. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah, if you, uh, if you enjoy The Greatest Discovery, if it's, uh, if it's one of your weekly listens... Uh, please consider supporting it in the Max Fund Drive. How do people do that, Adam? Well, they go to maximumfund.org slash donate, and they check the box next to the greatest discovery. That's the maybe the most important thing. Oddly, it's more important than going to the site itself. It's checking yeah. the box. Like I know there, it makes no temporal sense to explain it that way, but uh, 
but checking that box is crucial in making sure that uh, the shows you love get the support that you grant. Yeah. Speaking of issues temporal, Adam, <laughs> maybe we should get to this episode uh, and we'll be back later to talk more about the uh, the pledge, you know, the importance of pledging. Uh, but right now, why don't we start talking about season two, episode 10, The Red Angel. Kind of a lot to unpack in this one. Like we've talked a lot about uh, the the relative density of episodes in season yeah. two of Star Trek Discovery. This this one might be the most the cheesecakiest episode <laughs> of all. Oh yeah, like yeah. like you really need a thin slice of episode ten in season two, and what it gives you is yeah, like Paul Hollywood is really going to be enthused <laughs> by the the close texture of this of this season. Really tight crumb on uh, on the Red Angel. <laughs> yeah. And, and and watching Mary Berry try and power her dentures through it is going to be a bit harrowing, but uh, but she's going to do it. She's going to pull through. Here's the thing about the funeral scene that begins this episode. Like, I was surprised to learn that Arium was a Quaker. <laughs> <laughs> it's retroactively instilling more grief into a character we don't know like it's it's adding stuff to the periphery that we got one episode with her basically we got yeah. the run-up to her death and now we get the aftermath who had the more saccharine funeral ben was it tasha yar or was it arium wow i mean we knew tasha before she bought it so we knew her very well and data knew her better than anyone yeah he knew her in the uh in the robo-biblical sense. Did anyone know Arium the way that Data knew Tasha Yar? I don't know. I mean, that one guy in her uh, in her beach video, I guess. Yeah. Presumably. But he did. Yeah. I'm, I mean, um, post-robo. Yeah, I guess... I mean, that, uh, guy, that guy knew her no-robo. <laughs> <laughs> but who knew her post-robo? Yeah. You really have to... You know, mark the passage of time as pre and post robo. <laughs> um, it's a pretty interesting little montage while people are are speaking their piece at the gathering of friends to celebrate the life of Arium. We get uh, her brain being disassembled and wiped for data. Yeah, uh, we get the uh, the security lady and Captain Pike coming in and unshackling ash tyler who uh is back on the show now i wish we got at least one scene between his house arrest and now of ash tyler like wrapping his uh his bracelet in cellophane before taking a shower like all of the little indignities that come with wearing something that you can't take off like the smell of his wrist yeah <laughs> and building like the a lego millennium falcon yeah. that would have been fun the like it's so much more hairy than the rest of his wrist, <laughs> like taking off a cast. Yeah, yeah. There was one shot that I w I thought was particularly interesting in this montage, which was the camera kind of finds Arium's body on a slab, and then it crossfades between her face and Ash Tyler's face. Yeah, that seemed to be very specific to me. I mean, the film paper that I write about that edit goes something like. Uh, both of these people have are are built of things that are different than the things that are inside them. You know, right? They they have a they have something at work inside them that is working at odds with their Starfleet allegiance. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is the first episode 
uh, of the season, I believe, directed by Hanel M. Culpepper, who is going to be the first director on the Picard show that has been announced. Yeah, capably done, I felt, yeah. Uh, yeah. throughout. I totally agree. It's also the first episode where we hear Saru sing. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, Ben, it, when you are tapped to sing at a... Uh, at a funeral, you better be good. And I really like braced for what I was about to hear when uh, when Saru took his inhalation, right? I thought it was really weird that we didn't see him singing for the first several stanzas of his song. Yeah. Because I didn't think that was right because Doug Jones actually sang this track. Did he? Yeah, that's his voice. What? You? I think if he's singing it, like even though practically he's not, this is not going to be like diegetic singing, give him yeah. a little more face. Yeah. In the moment, I think. I think that the one bit that they got, the lip sync wasn't perfect. Agreed. That, that kind of ruined it for me. I and I assumed if, that they had some ringer come in and do the scent, do the makes, song. It makes me wonder if they rewrote the song after shooting and there was mm. a reason why they they couldn't show him for that reason because there was no way it would ever match up. Yeah, it did seem kind of like something was getting covered up there. It's not like, it doesn't like ruin the moment or anything. Not but at it all. Was, it was a little distracting and like I sat up in my chair both times I watched the episode. Yeah. Everyone gets a little moment uh, to eulogize Arium and that's sweet to see. I really liked uh, Detmer's comments a lot, but I thought they were a little awkwardly phrased, you know, like a little huh. on the nose about what it's like to be partially robo and yeah. how, uh, and how Aria made her feel okay about that. The sentiment was right, but the dialogue was wrong. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that what's weird about it is the use of the term augmentation, which right. means like improvement. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I guess it's especially weird because like the main way we use augmentation in like contemporary language is when we refer to breast augmentation or like butt augmentation. Right. So Yeah, those are the only two I'm even aware of. <laughs> I mean, you can get like calf augmentation. Yeah. Well, Ben, I mean, Arium did have augmented breasts. We know that <laughs> from the schematic that was behind her dead body. Yeah, we should see the uh, the MRI of, of Arium. Uh, one thing I wanted to call attention to, Ben, were the pallbearers for Arium's casket it was owo reese bryce and nilson which was uh which was the first arium actor sarah midich yeah there's a moment later in the episode where she comes on the bridge to replace arium yeah and it is so weird like there's like a moment where everybody like processes the awful feeling of a new person coming in to fill the chair of somebody that they just lost and loved, but it's the same actor that played that character last season. I kind of, uh, like in real life, I really love the move that Sarah Midich did in order yeah. to uh, to bail out of the character before she died and then <laughs> reclaim the position that she took on the bridge. She really like Game of Thrones her way back into... <laughs> That's some cold-blooded shit, Sarah Midich. I respect it. <laughs> game recognize game. They shoot that uh, so wide, though, that unless you're really looking for it, I think it's easy to miss. But she's the only crewman with the blonde ponytail, and uh, yeah. that made it pretty clear to me at the time. You think they're close enough to the Matara Nebula to shoot the casket 
into it? Like, is that where it finally goes? <laughs> That's what I believe. Wow. So, uh, so the entrepreneur is flying through that while it's getting shot at by the Reliant in, uh, yeah. in Star Trek Two. Yeah. Wow. So the the funeral breaks up, um, and uh, and Burnham and Ash Tyler wind up on the elevator together, and um, Burnham is kind of it, it, like Tyler is attempting to console her, and Burnham is still rip shit pissed at him, and kind of making the case that allegiance to section 31 has tainted him in a way very similar to being Vogue tainted him in the past. Yeah. Uh, it's taint on taint, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, she, she really resists any, like, you know, she cannot be vulnerable around him. She cannot, she can cannot let her guard down because, uh, because the, you know, like being, associated with section 31 causes her to hate him because of what just happened with Arium. And, uh, and we get like a little McLaughlin group issue one. They're talking about like what, what happened with that space station. The space station's destroyed. Like they've reformatted all of section 31's ships and, uh, you know, re reset them to factory settings. Uh, so they're, they're pretty sure that the, like the AI that con like the future AI of control that has been coming back through the red angels wormholes to start this process is contained, but they can't, uh, they can't be sure that it's not like lurking somewhere. The way that it lurked within Arium. Right. Right. And that's why they erased Arium's memories, right? Like, yeah, because it was in there too. Yeah. Uh, one interesting thing that happens in this scene is like for as pissed as Burnham is at Ash, she takes a moment to apologize for the uh, mistaken identity, right? Right. But he understands too. Like that, that's kind of a tension that, that's sort of a burden that Ash carries throughout his life on this show, right? It's always shit gets put on him, but he understands why and he <laughs> rolls with it. He's, he's like me in a lot of ways, you know? <laughs> Well, if he were like you, it things would actually be his fault. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I, I'm more like Michael Burnham than Ash Tyler. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the other thing that comes out in this meeting is that uh, like Tilly runs in and does a bunch of Tilly stuff and then uh, explains to everyone that she's found some fragment of information in Arium's uh, memory that leads her to believe that the Red Angel is in fact... Michael Burnham. Dun dun dun. Hold on, I'm I'm just uh I'm just reviewing the predictions that I made several episodes ago and uh just putting a check next to that one. <laughs> I feel like none of my predictions are coming right. Yeah, you're a lot like Ash Tyler that way. <laughs> really uh going back and forth on which character yeah. I most like. <laughs> uh <laughs> You contain multitudes, Ben. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Culber actually gets the gig of analyzing this bioneural signature, and he is just as convinced as Tilly is. Like he, he's like, yeah, like there's this would be like basically impossible to to fake. Yeah, uh, his explanation of the science here is really well done. I think uh, almost no similes at all. 
Like, <laughs> like he speaks practically and realistically and understandably about the situation, which is great. Spock in this scene uses this as an opportunity to make fun of his sister publicly, uh, which is a real treat. Yeah, the, like everybody in the room is kind of exchanging Detmer Oo style yeah. glances as as he kind of drags his sister. Is the Silverling rivalry here that delightful to everybody? They are making it seem as though it is. Like Pike is actually smiling, and so is <laughs> Admiral Bob. I wonder. Like, I mean, this is an episode where the reconciliation between Spock and Michael really starts. And that seems good. But this scene makes me think like their rift wasn't actually as serious as the show wanted us to think it was. And that's unfortunate, I think, by by so quickly making light of it. It's it's tough to take it as seriously as we were meant to. You're right. And yet, if you view it through the lens of Spock being satisfied in humiliating her in front of a group of coworkers, then like, I guess... You could read it that way and and see it as holding up. Yeah, I suppose so. But it kind of seems like everybody in this m- moment is maybe recognizing something that they have been through themselves. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, Captain Pike and his brother Daryl. They've had arguments like this before. <laughs> the Pike brothers were real terrors around. Uh... Yeah, and when Admiral Bob's sister also got a Bob at a young age, ooh. <laughs> you do not want to copycat your sister. No. Very irritating. Yeah. They stopped uh they stopped sharing clothes at that point. Right. So they get called uh to the transporter room and uh Leland and Giorgio beam over. Uh and another one of these beam overs where the camera doesn't show you who's beaming over until after everybody else in the room knows. I can't remember the last time we got a static shot of the transporter room as people beam aboard that was basically the only kind that we got on star trek the next generation right it was really distinctive about this show and we were talking i think in the last episode about just the the satisfaction right we get from the shot of the ship being in orbit and then pulling out and going to warp and i think that you could just toss a normal shot of people beaming aboard every so often and it would just it would feel nice I might disagree with you slightly, only because I feel like the former example I feel I think is like a necessary component to a Star Trek show. Like that yeah. ship arriving and leaving shot is is grounding for a show like this. But I'm I'm fine with them taking visual risks with the the beam over and beam off. Yeah. I just think that like in in this particular scene it doesn't actually add anything yeah. to it where whereas like the scene where the science officer beams over and the camera is next to his ear so that we see it's not spock you know it was actually doing something with with that i think this episode was a little less flashy than some of the ones we've come before it yeah uh, i, I don't know if I, maybe i'm being if i'm getting used to the flash or not but i kind of feel like that's true no i think i think you're right about less that less upside down transitions yeah. <laughs> I'm cringing already. Giorgio and Leland have arrived to propose a solution to the problem. They want to trap the Red Angel. They've uh, they've really leaned into the S&M aesthetic of Section 31, especially with Giorgio's get up in this yeah. scene. 
Uh, I think Spock is telegraphing his interest in that lifestyle as well, because uh, he's an all-black also. A lot of real kinksters on this ship. (laughs) We find out in a meeting afterward that uh, the Klingons were the first to research time travel, and so began a temporal arms race. Yeah, and the Red Angel is a is an invention of Section 31, uh, an anti-Klingon time travel project. I thought it was interesting that Ash Tyler was in the room for this discussion because it seems like he wasn't privy to this beforehand, right? I kind of felt like the flatness with which he delivered his line about, you know, confirming a suspicion that the Klingons would have destroyed humanity before emerging from the primordial ooze was said (laughs) in such a way that, like, that was obvious to him and as just as obvious as the rest of what was being said. So, I don't know, questionable for sure. Yeah. Must have been, like, I want to see that, uh, that like, research station with a bunch of Klingon scientists, you know? <laughs> like, uh, what do you seek? Time travel! <laughs> <laughs> you know, the gauge of syringe in a Klingon medical facility has got to be massive, yeah. right? It's got yeah, to be yeah. like a... <laughs> The only uh, the only people using uh, serrated hypodermics. Yeah, there is nothing that anesthetizes in a Klingon uh, medical <laughs> lab, right? <laughs> oh man, I had uh, a dentist appointment on Friday while I was sick, and getting my teeth drilled while I couldn't breathe through my nose because I was stuffed up was like one of the most Whoa. awful experiences I've ever had. You were snot boarded. Yeah, it sucked, man. Mm. Uh, but fortunately, they did use anesthetics on me. <laughs> so you did not go to a Klingon dental facility? No. St. <laughs> Kales Dentist's <laughs> facility. So the suit that Section 31 designed was about to be tested when it was destroyed by these Klingon spies. And that is... That is the end of the story that they tell. What they need to do going forward is to find a pattern to the jumps in order to predict when the Red Angel will appear next. And at this point, I sort of, I'm starting to understand that there's like, the Red Angel is being chased by the future AI because like the moment that the portal remains open when the Red Angel appears is like a very dangerous moment that, that they need to guard against. The AI is squirting its evil signal through that that opening, and uh, unclear on like at this point if the Red Angel is working in concert with the AI or what. Right. Giorgio and Burnham have like a little chat in the hallway where Giorgio is kind of putting Burnham onto Leland's scent. We've we've seen this kind of planted in yeah. an earlier episode where Giorgio has implied that Leland is to blame for the death of Burnham's parents. And, uh, and now Burnham knows that, you know, like Giorgio doesn't tell her that, but she basically says like, you better, you better, uh, shake the Leland tree and see what falls out of it. We're fairly certain that Leland's scent is old spice and leather, right? <laughs> yeah. You ever walk into like the, I, God, I keep using mall analogies. I don't know why, but like the, the store in the mall that's that, just sells, your way, Adam. <laughs> that sells nothing but leather jackets. Yeah. You know, that's how he smells. He smells like are, a leather jacket store. Are you a leather jacket, man? No, I am not. I, I can't imagine wearing a leather jacket. I just got my first denim jacket. The first denim jacket I've ever owned. I got Oh, one I a saw you in that. Ago. You look very handsome in that jacket. Thanks, man. 
Yeah, that's I'm a good a, one. I've I've got to break it in. Clearly, it feels like wearing a <laughs> feels like wearing the box to a record player or something. <laughs> oh yeah, I I recommend taking the hanger out before you put it on, Adam. That's that's just my posture, Ben. I have told you that <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> I've got James Con posture. <laughs> God, that reference is going to work for like 10 people. Yeah, I think Bill Tilly is going to like it. Yeah. You never learn to relish a little discomfort, Red? We get maybe the centerpiece of the episode in engineering. Coming yeah. Let's say McLaughlin group with Stamets, Tilly, and Giorgio for now. What they're doing is they're describing the containment unit uh, as designed. Very Ghostbusters-like situation, I think. Yeah, they there's some techno babble that needs to be gone over in terms of how you get to a situation where you can safely grab the red angel before she goes back through her wormhole and uh they're coming up with a plan when uh when dr culber walks in and uh it's it's never chill when culber and stamets are in the same room at the same time and it's just chilly (laughs) Giorgio is loving the tension of this and and an almost mirror vibe to tilly's feelings in the moment right tilly is is me you know wanting to crawl out of her own skin and Giorgio is like lapping it up i love that Giorgio has a nickname for everyone in the room it's fucking great (laughs) (laughs) i know she asks uh she asks tilly who raised her and tilly starts like oversharing about that yeah <laughs> my mom my mom but she wasn't around a lot she's so talking yeah and uh we get some some pretty interesting stuff about the way sexuality works in the mirror universe like stamets and Giorgio definitely had something together there and um, we actually were exchanging text messages with our buddy Sam, who is gay, and was uh, just blown away that they actually say, I'm gay in this scene. Right. Like like saying the words being a brand new thing to a Star Trek show. Right. And and that like that had a ton of meaning for him. And yeah. I, uh, I mean, it definitely stood, stood out to me when... I watched the episode, but uh, I was really happy to hear from Sam that it was like good and and affirming for for him to to see that in Star Trek. Um, you know, it's it's like in such a weird scene where like Giorgio is is calling Culber Poppy, and like it really like kind of enjoys the discomfort uh, of the scene. Like the scene enjoys its own sense of discomfort in the way that Giorgio is enjoying it. When Culber states his and Stamets' sexuality, it almost goes without saying, given that he's dressed like Karl Lagerfeld. (laughs) RSVP. Yeah. (laughs) Here's another thing I want to say about this scene. Like, for as affirming and good as it is for this representation to occur in this moment, Giorgio is doing a fair amount of, like, she's basically telling Stamets that she could turn him. Yeah. And that there is a hostility in that that is a little uncomfortable, right? Like it's not oh, yeah. all good in this scene, for sure. The human resources department is going to have some major concerns about the way she yeah. is interacting with her coworkers right. in this scene. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, uh, so Culber was looking for Admiral Bob um 
but instead is just like left there with Tilly and Stamets. Also, fuck you, Culber. You know where Admiral Bob is. Like, you didn't just accidentally go to engineering looking for her. Like, everyone knows where everyone is on the ship. Yeah. Maybe the the storyline in this episode that strains credulity the most is that, like, two scenes ten minutes apart are about Culber looking for Admiral Bob. And the fact that Culber thinks to look in Admiral Bob's quarters last is being... <laughs> yeah. Well, she's always the last her... place you look, you know? Yeah. <laughs> But maybe it shouldn't be so simple. But you gotta have this scene in the yet, Ben. Like, yeah. I feel like in many ways they started with this scene and worked outward. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's definitely possible. Uh, are you feeling confident still in your prediction that Stamets and Culber don't get back together? Um, yeah, I honestly, I, I still am. I don't know if the show is willing to keep them apart. But I, I feel like, I feel truly that what is right is that they remain apart. Whoa. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> if that scene wasn't uncomfortable enough, the next scene is uh, Michael Burnham extracting the truth from Leland. And uh, the truth being that her parents were like some kind of high-flying, super-secret research scientists for Section 31. So secret that Michael Burnham didn't even know about it as a kid. I love how pissed off she is this that she didn't realize her parents were in the CIA as a kid. Like <laughs> why would they, didn't they tell, tell me you about that? <laughs> eight year old Michael Burnham? Like <laughs> like that would ever happen. <laughs> I mean, I like yes, but also like emotionally probably true to like as an adult find out that your parents had a dark secret like that and yeah. have it you know, like, you only have childhood associations with your parents, so the, like, idea that they would be lying to you about something like that would be tricky to incorporate into the way you think about them. Right. And, yeah, the uh, the deal was that they, were, they built, uh, specifically Michael Burnham's mom built the Red Angel suit, and that they had, like, procured a time crystal, which is a thing that we learned existed in that uh hardcore fenton mud episode right uh but it was like a it was a klingon time crystal so the klingons came looking for it and killed everybody and it was uh, very sharp that's how you know it was a klingon <laughs> version it was pointy yeah yeah and wider gauge than is strictly necessary and there were two offshoots of it <laughs> um but leland was like young and ambitious and careless and uh, and got people killed and has apparently lived with some regrets about this uh, episode. But uh, but Michael Burnham does not feel like he's sufficiently regretful. So she punches him in the nose once for mommy and once for daddy. There's a it's not just Michael Burnham feeling terrible about the secret being hidden from her like this is her origin story is that moment in the closet listening to her parents getting killed and to know that there was a greater truth there uh is incredibly damaging to her yeah like she's made every choice in her life based on on that moment in the closet it's awful yeah her line read of i thought was amazing She's incredible in this scene. Like she, like the whole scene, she really lets these moments breathe as, yeah. as you see her kind of doing the Rubik's cube of what 
Leland is telling her in her mind and it really breaks her. It is, it is really devastating. In a show that is willing to use the F word uh, fairly casually, <laughs> I thought this might've been a good moment for that and a, a good and grounded moment. Like I think the first time we heard it was Tilly saying how science fucking rules, but right. I think a fuck you would have been appropriate here in that moment. Or I'm yeah, or just or, like a, a middle finger, double middles, something bloody middles, because <laughs> Burnham fucking almost takes his nose off. Yeah. Speaking of dealing with trauma, Adam, uh, Culber finally finds Admiral Bob and uh, hits her up for some for a free therapy session. First one's free. It's a good thing Admiral Bob's therapy lamp is on. It's very comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice, like, it's nice moody lighting. She's got those uh, those matching Eames chairs there. Uh-huh. And uh, Culbert is, is really, you know, having a tough time sorting things out because he definitely doesn't feel like present current love for Stamets, but he also has strong memories of that and doesn't want what he's going through to be and unnecessarily painful for for Paul. That's the cross that Culber is bearing that he kind of needs some help with. You know, for as therapeutic as this conversation is between Culber and Admiral Bob. Yeah. It's always nice in movies and television to see a single therapy session really help somebody out, you know? Like because in real life the first time you meet your therapist it's like you spend an hour like telling them what you think is wrong with you and then you spend like the next seven weeks trying to articulate that more and more. And then they're like, oh, like none of the things that you said in that first session are what's are what's really eating you. They're actually these other things. Yeah. But uh, for dramatic uh, expedience, I, I will accept it. <laughs> well, what I'm not willing to accept is what I was getting at, which is Admiral Bob tells Culber what to do and does not listen to him. Like... She, everyone in on the ship is conspiring to put him back together with Stamets, and I don't think that's right. She says love is a choice, and I don't agree with that statement at all. Like she's by saying that to Culber, she's saying you sh- you should choose to love Stamets because it's the right thing to do. She's not respecting his agency or his situation, and I don't think it's the it's the responsibility of a therapist to tell a patient what to do. I, I, look, I'm saying that as someone who is not as experienced in therapy as you, obviously, but I, I thought that was shitty. I think Culber needs time to fucking breathe. And even though he's there for help, I thought it was wrong for for Bob to continue this conspiracy. I understand where you're coming from on that, but I do think I fall on the other side of the argument. Like, my experience with therapy does involve, to some extent, being told things that I can do to, to change my situation. And sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes like you get in the habit of doing things that are, you know, stopping you from achieving your goals and, uh, and you're doing them out of habit, not because they're like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that the subtext of what Culber is saying is that there is still some, some love and affection there but he doesn't know how to express it or act on it in a way that feels authentic and real and 
that's why I really like that that final line where she says like the way you like make a road as you as you walk down it. I don't think she's saying you have to go love Paul per se. I think she's saying like you need to walk this road and like nobody can really tell you exactly, you know, what's going to happen. I don't know. Did that make sense? I'm a little like doped up on Dayquil. <laughs> no, it does make sense. I just think that we're I think we take uh, opposing positions on the scene and I think that's fine. I think yeah. I think you view it uh through the lens of your choosing. But I think it it speaks to a greater environment around the ship that I am I'm resistant to and I I just felt like this was an example of that. Yeah. No, I agree. I do agree with you that like everybody seems to have that opinion like including Spock, which is crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh speaking of Spock, there is a scene to come where Spock uh, walks in on Michael Burnham. Uh, that's the one thing you don't want to do to a sibling. <laughs> and uh, and she happens to be uh, beating the shit out of some... What are the... Uh, I wanted to say sock boppers, but those are the, like the boxing gloves that you inflate on your hands. What's the <laughs> thing that you hit that... It's a weeble wobble, right? She's oh, hitting the know. weeble wobbles and the... Yeah, and she is going to town on these foam dummies. Spock really respects that she beat up Leland. Um, She's wearing and... an athletic garment that does not breathe at all, Ben. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those things that you wear for like weight loss. You know, she's going to put that in the wash and uh, all of its moisture wicking properties are going to go away because you accidentally used detergent and oh, you're not fuck. supposed to. Don't you hate that? That sucks. Yeah. You got to look at the tags before you buy the garment, you know? Yeah. She really, uh, she really beats the hell out of this thing. Like, I, I really liked that the the paint on it was like worn away and scuffed in places. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, that was a pretty interesting choice. Like, things tend to look very perfect and clean in Star Trek. Yeah, and the idea that this thing has seen some use and has some patina on it was yeah. cool. They come to an understanding together uh, about how it feels to have their logical and emotional sides. Uh, in conflict at the same time. And this conversation builds to a climax where Spock accepts her apology. Yeah, and her she's apologizing for something kind of surprising, I think, which is for bringing her guilt and feeling of culpability for the death of her parents into his house. Like, she is imagining that what she was going through had a direct line to the way she treated him when she ran away. And he makes a great point, which is that like you're apologizing for having an appropriately childlike reaction to a super heavy situation. Uh, And while I, you know, kind of reject the premise of it, I will accept the apology because I want to take that weight off your shoulders. I think this scene is one of the best moments of Sinequa Martin-Green as Michael Burnham on the show. The moments after the apology is accepted is so, it's so subtly great. Yeah. It is so effective on her part. And she has a, she has a couple moments in the ep that are as good, maybe none better than this moment, but I thought this was a great episode for her. Yeah. The through line from episode one of season one to now feels so strong yeah like the this idea that 
she is the person that takes 100% of responsibility for everything all the time and always feels the most guilty about everything. Yeah. And that being like something that Spock in a very loving way is trying to help her unburden herself of is very interesting. Yeah. She was an only child. She did go to a tennis academy. I'm starting to see the resemblance. (laughs) Yeah. You just need to find some time to beat the shit out of some Weeble Wobbles, Ben. I feel like they're really making this series of Star Trek at me. Do you feel seen? (laughs) I feel seen. For once in my life, I feel seen. (laughs) Uh, Spock sort of by the ways, Michael Burnham, at the end of this. Yeah. And, And the by the way is that he's figured out the reason... Or he's figured out a way to predict the Red Angel's appearance. and He's like, you know how Ben thought that there were going to be hollow emitters when he was making predictions at the end of the last episode? Ben was wrong. <laughs> it was weird that Ethan Peck just sort of turned to camera to deliver that. <laughs> <laughs> really uh, surprising to see them break the fourth wall in that way here and now. The uh, io9 article reviewing this episode, the title of that was, Who is Benjamin R. Harrison? <laughs> <laughs> I know. What are they talking about? It's, it's, uh, it's an ongoing source of, uh, of grief for both of us that io9 does not know who or what we are. Right. But, but here we are. Yeah, so uh, the Red Angel appears outside of the Seven Signals only when Michael Burnham's life is threatened. And it's surprising that it took several days for him to realize this. Well, it's not only when, it's it's when lives are threatened, but like when hers was threatened specifically, it did show up. So yeah. they figure out that if they want to make the Red Angel appear, they threaten her life specifically and uh, and the Red Angel will show up. There's a great place not far away to threaten Michael Burnham's life, Ben, and that's Esau 4. It's the uh, it's the mining facility there. It's a planet that is a real dump. It's the uh, <laughs> they uh, they beam down and they're like, "Wow, this place is a dump." Saru is like, "Wait, do you see the pool? <laughs> no water." Um, but but yeah, I guess I guess the idea is that it will kill her over the course of. A number of seconds or a minute or two so the red angel will have an opportunity to show up because like they could just shoot her in the head with a phaser right yeah but that's not what section 31 likes to do i think you understand finally just exactly what kind of shit that they're into when you realize that there is uh there's a chair and some uh and some straps and some breath play that's gonna happen there's some nasty little kinksters yeah yeah, section 31. Club you really have to look hard to find. <laughs> what they've come up with is that they're going to they're going to set up all these uh, all these emitters that will trap the red angel, you know, disconnect her from the the uh, thing that she leaves on the other side of the wormhole, I guess. Cuz I guess like their logic is like she keeps opening these wormholes and the and controlled like evil AI future control sends its signals back and that keeps perpetuating this AI problem that we're having. So if, if we can stop her from opening these wormholes, our problems will be solved, man. What if it doesn't work? Well, maybe they could just keep Michael Burnham out of trouble. Maybe that would <laughs> prevent these 
<laughs> these things from happening. There you go drop Michael Burnham off at, on Earth and be like, needs of the many, etc. Yeah. All right, later. <laughs> I'm sure you get it. She just gets like a desk job at Starfleet Academy. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a, a few moments before this, like uh, of, of particular note is the moment where she and Ash Tyler talk about the fact that she's going to go threaten herself with death. Like one confrontation that we didn't talk about is the fact that uh, she like runs up to him after beating up Leland and goes like, did you know this section 31 thing about my folks? And he's like, what? Huh? Did you believe him? I did. We have no reason to, but I did also. But like we shouldn't ever, right? That's sort of the magic trick of this character and this show is like we keep going back to Ash Tyler when we have no reason to. I've worked uh, for a couple of companies where when I got hired, I wasn't like curious about old shit that the company had done, you know, and I think that that's kind of the deal here. Like he's a fairly new employee of Section 31. So why would he give a rip about some bonehead move that Leland pulled 30 years ago or whatever? I just, (laughs) hey, honey, I got a new job. What is it? (laughs) Border security. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's like what she says, right? I don't know anything about their job or their mission, but it sounds pretty important. <laughs> and it's a paycheck. Yeah. I mean, that's the case that Burnham makes several times in this episode is like your association. I go back and forth to the border with a truck full of tiny cages. <laughs> Asking questions about what the tiny cages are for? Not really uh, my pay grade. No. I'm just going to keep driving this truck and ignoring the banging from the back. That's the case that Michael Burnham makes several times in yeah. the episode. It's yeah. like you you uh, have aligned yourself with this organization, and he's like, well, I don't like always agree with their tactics, but I agree with the mission, which is like not that big, not, not that good of a defense, you know? Right. No, it's not. But they get on with it. They uh, they build this mousetrap. They, uh, they strap Michael Burnham into this chair, and they open the door, and we get we a- We built this mousetrap. <laughs> we built this mousetrap to catch the angel. You have a beautiful singing voice. I don't have a sinus infection. That's why. That's why you're doing all the songs this episode. We we get that scene that we referred to earlier, Ben. The uh, Lieutenant Nilsson takes her station, and we get. What well, I'm just gonna call. I'm gonna I'm gonna name a new thing, Ben. When mm. bridge crew members look at each other in reaction. I'm going to call that a do-o. <laughs> the, uh, the Detmer Owo glance uh, yeah. proliferates around the bridge. It's a hell of a combination. Poor Nilsson. It's a tough first day on the job. They strap Michael Burnham in. She's the only one in a regular uniform. Everybody else is in a spacesuit. And they go uh, close themselves off in a room that is not going to be exposed to the atmosphere of this shitty planet and uh then they open the doors up and uh fuck this scene is rugged (laughs) the last temptation of christ level depiction of michael burnham's agony was surprising to me and she does such a compelling job that i noticed for a show that usually shows a bunch of reaction shots to teach a viewer how to feel they kind of dialed that back a little bit because sneakle martin green was so scary in this it moment is very scary it is like un- it was uncomfortable for me both times to watch it yeah. i wondered why pike didn't say like 
can you turn the audio down or something? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, variance was the safety word, and uh, that does not... <laughs> It does not get her out of the chair because, no, uh, in because fact, Spock it, knows. Spock knows that, that it's it's instructional and not safety. Right. What Spock realizes is that is is what Michael Burnham realizes. Like the threat to her life has to be real. There can't be a safety net on this one to actually like if the if the Red Angel doesn't think that plausibly she's gonna die. And the logic of this is that the Red Angel is Michael Burnham from the future, so she would cease to exist if she was killed, and they need to convince future Michael Burnham to come back to save her own life. Yeah. So Spot goes and like stands by the door and holds everybody hostage with a with a phaser, and uh, and they actually let her, you know, breathe her last breath. Yeah, pretty hard to watch. And everyone watches it. Like, the Discovery watches it, Section 31 watches it. Those on the ground on ESA 4. She flatlines, and Pike is like, get her out of there, beam her up, and uh, and there's too much interference. And they're like, and I think it's uh, Admiral Bob that asks what the interference is from. And it uh, turns out it's from the Red Angel. Never on schedule, but always on time. The interference is not from... Sonequa Martin Green Brandoing. <laughs> like, Sonequa Martin Green does everything short of Brando in this scene. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if she Brandoed. I mean, they could have they could have built something into that chair, you yeah. know? Yeah, like a hole. Yeah. That thing might be a toilet. <laughs> uh and uh, the Red Angel shoots a That's beam. That's the name of your porno. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Angel shoots a beam at her chest that uh, brings her back to life. And then they uh, they spring the trap, bring the Red Angel down. She steps out of the suit and uh, kind of like falls to her knees. And uh, I love how the suit ejects her. Like it's not wrapped yeah. around her in a any unique like way. It dematerializes in the front. Yeah, yeah. And then rematerializes, and then it's just standing there. It probably helps a person pee, right? If uh, <laughs> if it just comes off the front. Yeah, that's that is way better than the uh, than the little slot in in the underpants that you're supposed to thread your penis through. <laughs> Or if, or if you're a lady inside the suit, uh, the suit probably comes with its own stadium buddy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can brand own that suit all day. <laughs> and uh, who from the suit should appear, Ben? Kima Greggs from The Wire. Yeah, Sonya Sun. Maybe my favorite character from The Wire. It's hard to pick a favorite, but yeah. just hearing Sonya Sun's voice again... So great, so satisfying. Yeah. One of the great voices in television, I think. Seriously, and uh, she is Michael Burnham's mom. Yeah. What? I, this is great casting. I think. Who else could be her mom? It fucking short circuited my brain when she because because like her head is kind of like down initially, yeah. and when she looks up, I was like, I was so primed for it to be Michael Burnham looking up. Yeah. That I was like, what? Kima? <laughs> yeah. It was, that was like a great television moment. I couldn't be sure that it was future ruggedized Michael Burnham because the resemblance right. was so good. Yeah. Until they really cut back to her and you heard her voice. 
but I also like never would have said like, oh yeah, Sonia Son looks a lot like Sonequa Martin Green. No, I wouldn't have put that together either. It's the it, contextual element that totally sells it. Right. Yeah. It's it's wild. We should not uh gloss over the scene uh immediately preceding this where Leland uh is like trying to do something with his computer and it stabs him in the eyeball. It's a scene that will turn off a generation of people from an optometrist. <laughs> yeah, a lot of big television moments in the end of this episode. I don't know how anyone could could get an eye exam and not think of this scene if they'd watch this episode. That is pretty scary. Why does Star Trek Discovery want us to see people stabbing themselves in the eye so much? I don't know. It keeps happening. Yeah. It's it's a very Star Trekian form of body horror. Yeah. Well, did you like this episode, Adam? Yeah, I really did. I mean, it seems like it's it's doing the 10 pounds of story in a five pound bag thing, but yeah. it somehow is able to keep containment. And the show has a uh, a mixed history of its ability to do that. Yeah. Um, the reveal at the end was satisfying in its surprise. Like, I... I am reflexively against a against surprises like this. Like I feel like it's manipulating or teasing the viewer, but I didn't feel that in the moment. I I went along with it. Yeah. Which I think makes it a good episode. I I think uh like everything led up to this moment and I thought it did a good and satisfying job of it. Do you think that so like the the whole premise of of Michael Burnham killing herself here was that they had like very definitive evidence that the brain inside of the red angel was Michael Burnham's brain. Do you think that the case is going to be that like that signature would be similar from mother to daughter and that's why they were confused? Or do you think that Michael Burnham is going to get in that suit? I wonder if there aren't multiple angels. One of the angels is the one that that appear with the red the red signal, and the other one appears when Michael Burnham's life is in trouble. Maybe there are multiple wearers. Hmm. Yeah. I could see that being the case. Because if you exist out of time, like I could totally see that being the case. I could see the case for there being multiple wearers also. If you have if time doesn't exist, it means you have all the time in the world to create right. more suits. Or give them to people that that you think should wear them. It's a crazy problem to wrap your mind around. <laughs> yeah. I think we can be reasonably confident that there's one time crystal. Yeah. I feel like time crystal is a very corny idea, but it's actually kind of smart to like limit the potential ramifications of the existence of this technology. You know what, though? I'm actually going to say no, that can't be true, because if there, are, if there were only one, everyone in the universe's resources would be brought to bear on that Orion market to take yeah. it back. And, and the story that Leland tells makes it seem like a pretty small black op in an ecosystem of many other black ops. Like if... I've got to believe that there's more than one. Hmm. I'm going to say that. I mean, uh, Mud had one. Yeah. So. Yeah. They they get destroyed at the end of that episode? I don't know. I forget. I feel like that set that in, from the Harry Mud Short Treks ep was ESA 4, 
when Mud is is walked through that space station in chains, and we were commenting on all the parking spaces for spaceships that we didn't get to see. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the same set, that long hallway. Oh. I don't know. That's what I thought. Oh, fun. They probably, uh, yeah. I mean, there definitely seems to be like an industrial building set that they've used for like when they rescued uh, Tignataro, wasn't mm. there kind of like a room that looked like that? Yeah. It's always like sparks falling from the ceilings or or it's like dry and bombed out looking. Speaking of Tig, I feel like uh, Emperor Georgiou is the quip master when Tig is not around. And I hope we get a scene at some point where the two of them are quip battling together. <laughs> I think that would be very fun. <laughs> wow. What about you, Ben? Did you like the episode? I did. I, I don't have much to add to what you've already said, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I thought it was very enjoyable, and I really loved the twist. I wonder if you don't get Sonya San for that part, if it's as big a moment. Yeah, I wonder that too. You hope she picks up the phone when you make that inquiry. Yeah. Ben, this is not an original thought, but I did want to ask you this question before we got to the end uh one of the questions i read online was why wipe arium's memories instead of keeping them or giving them to a loved one i think we know practically that the reason they did that was to destroy any potential for control to exist outside of their outside of the, their control like i know control right. versus control is an awkward way to say it but <laughs> like the one way to ensure that it doesn't pop back up again is to destroy it but i think that was an emotionally interesting moment that isn't given any time to breathe because by destroying her memories you're there's something to grieve there in that moment and it's so clinical Mm -hmm. and and without emotion that i i think that that deserved a little bit more i think maybe cross-cutting it between the the eulogy does that to a degree but i don't know something about that sticks in my mind huh i mean I don't feel like it was said so definitively like that there wouldn't necessarily be a thumb drive with the beach video on yeah. it somewhere. Yeah. They wiped her memory, but I don't know if they wiped every single thing that she ever remembered. So, I don't know. Yeah. Top of the morning to ya. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, It works great. Uh, Trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit, plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality, and this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscapes.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. I have tried so many meal services over the years. 
After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from, what am I gonna have for dinner, to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda. I did. Um, my Shimoda in this episode is Dr. Culber. Um both for the thing of looking for Admiral Bob for 20 minutes. And, like, you know, it's a little hard to tell how much time passes between the first scene and the second scene where he walks into a room looking for her. But I would imagine that it could be as much as, like, a day has gone by. I love the idea of, you know how, like, when you were little and you lost your parents in a supermarket, you just walk... Uh, perpendicular to the aisles, like looking yeah. down everyone. <laughs> it's not a good look for Culber to be like a lost child on the ship looking for Admiral Bob. He's, yeah. he's smart and we know he is. Yeah. Uh, but the other moment I wanted to call out is that scene where um, they've got Michael Burnham like breathing her last breath on the other side of that door and Pike is like, what the hell is going on down there? Get Culber in there to to save her and he radios back up to pike and he says like we can't because lieutenant spock is uh, holding a gun to us or something like that and uh both times i watched it it sounded to me uh, like i heard it wrong and then realized what he had said and what i heard it wrong as was lieutenant fuck is it <laughs> <laughs> as this at gunpoint and uh very apt i think dr culber I love that they uh, tilt over to Joaquin and he like bangs his 
his controls and he's like I can't <laughs> nice little callback to Wrath of Khan from, yeah, from the cool. show I like that I like all the little callbacks good to see Jeds and Scott getting work these yeah. days <laughs> Adam did you have a drunk Shimoda I mean we make jokes a lot about the uh, the kinks that the characters on the show might have yeah. and I think one of the one of the rules I think about a person's predilections is that uh, sometimes sharing those with other people can be unwelcome in the wrong circumstance. Sure. I was not aware that uh, Pike wanted to show everyone his breath play videos (laughs) (laughs) by putting Michael Burnham up on the screen unnecessarily, I felt. Like, on the one hand, I get it. Valued member of the crew, you want to keep a watchful eye over her circumstances. Uh, but wow, what I think a lot of people on the bridge wouldn't have given to just see like a heart rate, you know? Yeah. And it's fucked up that he's like kind of zhuzhing himself while <laughs> while it's going on. I think what makes me think that is the strength of Sonequa Martin-Green's performance. If it's not 10 out of 10 or 11 out of 10, I think this scene goes by in a way that doesn't read as like emotionally hostile as it is. Yeah. But it's so tough because she's so great that I think the I think it makes the case for itself in a fucked up way. It's it's dark and amazing and hard to believe that it exists in a Star Trek show as it is. But I, the the Shimoda choice itself is going to be Pike for I hope regretting that decision. I hope there's something in him that goes really sorry about that about that gross out. I didn't think she was going to Brando. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, What do we have coming up on the next episode, Ben? Well, it looked to me like a lot of the next episode is going to take place in this same kill chamber that uh, that this this episode ended in. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they've entrapped the Red Angel in a way that makes moving her possible. Yeah, so so uh, she's uh, saying something about how time always wins, and uh, we got some scenes of Klingons and like a and like a bird looking ship that I thought might be uh, more flashbacks to the to the scene of Michael Burnham's parents being mm. finger quotes killed right uh, so I mean I we're gonna have to figure out what happened there right because uh, they they don't appear to have been killed as killed as she was led to believe less than killed so yeah i mean uh, it all went by pretty fast but that's what i got out of the vasectomy that we were shown at the end of this episode i've been hearing online that some people are not seeing these little next time on star trek discoveries that's weird i've 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 never not gotten them yeah me neither but it's like i guess the streaming platform might be just like dynamically adding them to the episodes like i don't know I'm, yeah, I, I, I use the uh, CBS All Access app on my PlayStation 4, so I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what uh, what people are using to watch it. Maybe if you're watching in a browser on your computer, it doesn't show it or something. Yeah, I I would recommend watching them if you can. I think they're they're good little packages. Yeah, that's a good package. <laughs> We, speaking of, we have a, we have an episode package to deliver to Rob for editing. So Yeah, we sure do. I think he's got some comments on his own, uh, thanking you for supporting the show and him and his work here. 
Yeah, we really appreciate everything Rob does, and uh, we really appreciate the folks who enable us to employ Rob because uh, we couldn't do this without him. So uh, we'll let him take it away. This is the last Pledge Drive ep for The Greatest Discovery. So thank you to everyone who has supported the show up until now. Thank you in advance for those who are going to turn off the show and immediately go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to support it. Yeah, you have until March 29th to support, but do it right now so you don't forget. And we'll give it on over to Rob, who is waiting in his chair restraints. (laughs) Yeah, we should probably close those doors, huh? Yeah. I do have a couple things to say, and I don't want to just repeat myself all the time, so I'm going to tell a little story, and it's going to be quick, because I tend to be long-winded and say extra words. I was working at a major media organization that had long hours, contract only, perma-freelance, quite frankly, a content machine. Not as much fun. And one day, I get a phone call from Benjamin R. Harrison. And he said, there's actually a new Star Trek show coming out. And I said, I'm in. Ben's fun to work with. Adam is fun to work with. This show is fun to work on. And the audience and listeners and everyone that supports the show makes it worth it. It's about what we're doing, the fun we're having, and the people that enjoy what we're making. It's great. Not only that, when you support through Maximum Fun, you get all of the awesome rewards that Ben and Adam have already talked about. So, why not support a show you like on a network you like? I really, really appreciate all of the support. Thank you all. And remember, our theme music for this show and all of the interstitials come from the great Adam Ragusea. You can follow Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at Cut for Time, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Make sure to use the hashtag greatest discovery or greatest gen when you're talking about the show on social media and tell a friend, get a donation buddy, hold hands together while you hit donate right now. Go do it. Maximumfun.org slash donate. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.